Hello and welcome. This is the Carbon Watchdog podcast. Hello and welcome to the Carbon Watchdog podcast. My name is Adam Hardy and uh, you can support me on Patreon if you like this podcast and you want to hear more. Uh, today's guest that I have is uh, Dirk Carstens. He's a German friend of mine who I met while I was living in Munich. He went to Edinburgh University where he studied physics and he's become somewhat anglicized through, through that experience, although you probably have a, what's the word for becoming Scottish? I'm not quite sure. Uh, he now lives back in Munich again, where he works as a patent attorney. And the reason why I've got him on the podcast is because he is the proud owner of a Tesla Model 3, which he was just telling me he managed to get as one of the first people in, Munich, in Germany to uh, own one of these machines by virtue of uh, adopting the, the reservation that a colleague of his had had for four years prior to when he actually took it over. So, um, hi, Dirk, how are you doing? Hello, everyone. I'm fine. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast here. I'm happy to join. No, it's great to have you. I think there's, uh, there's loads of people that will want to hear about what it's like to actually own, own, a, pod, own a, uh, a Tesla. All the awesome and all the awful stuff about it, too. Um, so, shall we get, um, get right to the point? And um, how much did you actually pay for your Tesla when you eventually, took, when you eventually got it delivered? Well, I mean, they basically only sold initially the really expensive cars. I think they, they floated on the market the cars. With the, with the biggest battery, so the long-range battery, and the one with the dual motors. So I think it has 500 horsepower, which is far too much. So I did pay in the end around 60,000 euros for the car. But nowadays, I think you get the Model 3 for much cheaper. And personally, I only recommend getting one with uh, one motor, but with a long-range battery. So it seems to be too powerful, actually, for most of the roads. Let's put it this way. And the long-range battery has a range of what? What's, what sort of range can it get you? Well, it, 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 it gets sold to you with, with the promise of 500 kilometers range, which sounds very good. And it's, it's for, for my purposes, it's... it's uh, it's a very comfortable range. I never had any, any range anxieties in the sense that I thought I can't get anywhere or I need to think about how to get back home. So 500 kilometers is the official range, but I think you only really get that if you drive 80 kilometers per hour and you hide yourself behind a big truck or a big bus so you can use the, the, the leeway of the, of, of the truck the slipstream, right. The slipstream, sorry, yes. The slipstream to, to get that range. So I think probably the normal range is 400 kilometers. But I don't have the feeling that I, I really need to watch out for the range because by now, at least here in, in Germany or Munich, you have so many charge points that uh, I can always decide spontaneously where to go. I don't need to do any sort of massive planning. 
or, or look at a map in detail where to charge for how long. So, okay, we've got a for going a long distance, we've got this handy sort of uh, app in, in England called the Zap Map, and it'll just it'll tell you which way to go, which route you need to take to get the best charging stations. And, well, uh, actually, in, with, with the Model 3, you have a very sophisticated software. You compute in the car, you tell, you tell the computer where you want to go, and it uses your current charge level and tells you exactly where to, to stop for how long and charge for how long, and tells you what, with what kind of remaining battery charge you will arrive. And it even tells you if you can go back where you started with, with the current charge. And so it's, this is all the calculation and, and, and navigation and route planning for you. And it even adapts it to, to, to the real world conditions. Uh, sometimes if you use the air conditioning too much, uh, for example, then you might have to adapt your, your travel journey on the way. Right. Yeah, I've got I've experienced that in my in my usage of um, and I drove an e-golf around for a while, hired it for a couple of weeks. Just for just for everybody who doesn't know what 500 kilometers is, that's roughly 300 miles. So you're looking at about 80 percent of that is, is the real range, the true life, the real life range. And so is that. Um, so all of the information in the computer that it's telling you where to go to charge, that will be continuously updated as sort of month by month as new charging points are, are built around the, around the country. It's um, not even, I would say it's, 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 it's faster than on a, on a monthly basis. It's the whole map system is based on, on Google Maps and you, you download it while you're driving. Uh, so I, w I would assume that information regarding new charging points is becoming online even more swiftly. Right. Okay. That's pretty good. And it's actually, it's interesting. I've never experienced that before because you get a new software for your car on a, on a more or less two weeks basis. And so it feels like every two weeks or every month you get a halfway new car because the, the, the whole software changes on the computer and even some, some new functionality comes up, your, your autopilot gets more sophisticated, it can recognize the signs next to the road or the, the traffic lights, or you get a, a recent guy actually got more, more horsepower, which was quite surprising for me as a physicist. Basically, they, they, they managed to upgrade the software controlling the electric motors and they managed to manage to squeeze out more horsepower out of the motors by more dynamically configuring the poles of the, the electric motor or something. I didn't quite understand how they managed to, but through a software update, I suddenly got 10% more horsepower, which I found interesting. Right, okay. And that is the sort of usual stuff that you do in your job though, isn't it? Um, this, kind of this kind of physics, low-level well, stuff you're looking I'm, at patents in this area all day right yeah i'm more uh, wireless communications so oh, right, okay. really electrical cars we, we do work for some automotive companies but more in, in, the, in the airbag field for example or or drive trains and um, power steering but not really something specific for electrical vehicles 
So Tesla work quite a lot with patents i guess then all of this stuff that they're pumping out of having a lot of it well actually i think elon musk actually has the policy then and uh, that he wants the market to adopt his technology so he doesn't go with patents after people at least he says he says that in public so he's got some sort of open license policy which for me as a patent attorney, obviously is not good, <laughs> but um, <Right. laughs> I, d I don't think they file a lot of patent applications. Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. Well, they, if, they've got one proprietary thing, which is really important, I think, for Tesla. And, and if I see how other people use their electric cars and compare that with Tesla, I mean, there's one big positive thing about Tesla. It's the, the charging network. So they have got these supercharging network all across the world and especially in North America and in Europe and it allows yeah. you to drive with your car around and, and quickly charge up your car say within half an hour at these points all across the continent and other companies don't have such a network yet surely they can develop it but they haven't so I mean last year in June we drove with the bottle three from munich to to scotland yeah and we managed to find a supercharging point from tesla all across europe while driving up to scotland and even up in Aviemore in scotland we managed to charge our car within 25 minutes half an hour and that's very convenient i mean if you if you travel with with your family with with kids by the time the kids are to go to the restrooms or you have a coffee yeah your car is already nearly fully charged again okay so you so you can get full charge on a battery in half an hour pretty much yes say 80 percent and these are just my screen blanking um and so these tesla charging points are they, are they actually tesla charging points or are they just charging points that tesla's Tesla has kind of like uh, gone, okay, we're going to join in with this charging network over there. They must surely share them. They're not pure Tesla only. No, they are only, they are proprietary to Tesla. I mean, you, you drive up with your, your Tesla car, you just plug in the car. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to swipe a card or something. The car talks to the charging point and says, hello, it's me. You should know me because I've got the following identification number. Plus right. the old car has credit number credit card such and such yeah so i only need to put in the cable the charges i unplug the cable i can drive off right it's really just these charging points are just for tesla cars right you can't charge any other cars there so it's part of the tesla bubble so to speak okay that's a bitch don't like that i hated the idea when because way back when renault and i think it was was Toyota or some Japanese company were talking about just literally batteries that they could drop out of a car and replace in two or three minutes. So basically you wouldn't have anything like recharging a battery in the car. That would have been just completely out the window. You wouldn't have bothered doing that. So it'd been, it would have been like going to a petrol station and instead of getting a tank of petrol, you would have just got a new battery. And then it dropped, it folded, the whole scheme folded and they abandoned it. And I just could not understand at the time, why were they doing that? But that's well, just- I think I, 
I can shed some light in there because I, I know that Tesla initially thought about a similar concept that you you can drive up to a station and have your your battery replaced instead of charging it. But I think they decided against it for several reasons. First of all, I think the, the battery is the most valuable part of the car. The battery is pretty much half the value of the car. And you have to sort of take care of it. They, they explain to you when, when they hand over the car to you that you should not empty it completely and you should not charge it like to 100%. And also if you, if you charge it slowly, then it has a longer lifetime. So the right. way you treat your battery determines how long your battery, how long the lifetime of the battery is. So people, because it's such a valuable part of the car, I'm not sure if people would have accepted that you swap out the battery because you don't know whether you get a crap battery instead for your good battery, which you looked after for 10 years or something. Oh yeah, yeah, right. So if you had to, yeah, yeah. So if you start paying for the actual battery rather than just the charge in the battery, then yeah, I can agree with that completely. But I, mean, I would have I, thought that surely as a physicist, you should know, can't you put chips, can't you put a circuit on the, on the battery to stop it charging too fast, to stop it charging to 100%, to stop it discharging to zero? Well, I guess it depends on how you want to use the car. If you, if you need the entire range, you, you have to charge it to the full brim, I guess, most of the time. If you just use it between 30% and 80% of the battery capacity because you only have to go a daily small distance and something different. But Right. Not sure. But in general, the lifetime of the battery seems to be good. I mean, this at least initially when there were, were not so many Tesla cars out there, when, when, you, when you pull up to one of the charging points, you get out of your car, you hook it up on the cable, and then you start talking to the other Tesla drivers who are around there and you exchange information and you and talk to right. the cars. And I got to know quite a few, few people who had initial Model S from, from uh, 2012 or 13, so one of the first Model S, and they're still using the first battery set, and they are probably down to 70 percentage, 70 percent of the initial battery capacity, but they have clocked up to 400, 500,000 kilometers, and they, the batteries still work. And that's, I think that's a big advantage compared to combustion engines, because you can't do that with a normal motor and a combustion engine because it's, it's, it's worn down up to say 300,000 kilometers. Right. And the electric motors, they basically never break down. I mean, they are, the actual motors, they're encapsulated and there's no, no real wear and tear on them. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, so they could go, for, they could just go on forever really. Motors can go forever. It's the, the batteries. Uh-huh. A lot of people thought initially, oh, let's see, they're so expensive and see how long they actually last. Yeah. It seems to be good for, for, for at least for Tesla. So your, so your general um, maintenance bills for the car, what, how much are you paying for that? How much do you pay to keep it on the road? I mean, sorry, I don't mean keep it on, I mean mechanically. I don't mean the tax and the, light and the insurance or anything, but just mechanically. Well, I can only say, uh, I got the car in March last year and I haven't had a single repair so far. The only thing I had to do so far, I had to exchange 
summer tires for winter tires and winter tires for summer tires. And I think I've got 25,000 kilometers on the clock so far. And I heard from other Tesla drivers who had the cars for much longer that the only wear and tear they are seeing is uh, the brakes, the suspension, and nothing else. I mean, I think that's one of the big advantages is that you have far less parts that can break down. I mean, you don't have uh, all the, the right. little moving parts of a combustion engine. You don't have a exhaust system. You don't have a fuel injector. You don't have any sort of fuel filters and gearbox. Rick gearbox. You have, a, you, you have a you have a gearbox, but it's it's different than to a normal engine, to a normal combustion engine. I haven't quite understood how, but it's you have some sort of gearbox. Right. The um, a question I was going to ask. What was um, so when you buy an expensive car, at least in Britain, and presumably with your average Mercedes and BMW in in, in Germany. You have a logbook where you get where you get the the service from the from the from the uh, approved garage stamps in your logbook in your car, and you have to get it done every year, and you know every year or every thirty thousand miles or something like that, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Don't you have the same thing with Teslas? Don't you have to prove that you're getting it maintained uh, to keep the value? I don't have a logbook, but I'm, I think it's. They, they keep the data file of your whole car online, so I can go online and see what Tesla believes the status of my car is. Right, okay. So I think as you, you know, in Tesla, the whole, in the whole Tesla bubble, a lot of data is going from your car to Tesla. Yeah. And they store a lot of data about your, the way you're driving the car, when it's being maintenance and everything. You don't have a personal logbook at home anymore. It's all kept in the company. It's a bit scary. I mean, sometimes yeah. I don't really want to know what kind of data Tesla is collecting about me. <laughs> I fear there's a lot of money involved as well. I mean, I recently heard that Tesla wants to revolutionize the whole insurance market as well because they, they say they can offer much more tailored insurances for the drivers of the cars because they know how you're driving so they, if they know that you are you're an aggressive driver you get some more you get a more expensive insurance offer and if you're a, a tame driver you get a good deal with the with their insurance company no kidding well that yeah, kind of so makes sense well that's good if you're an it's good if you're a safe driver it's kind of crap if you're 18 years old <laughs> exactly yeah does Michelle drive it as well? Yes, she does. And I think she likes it quite a bit. Uh-huh. That's funny. So the um can you actually hire one as well from anywhere in Munich? If I came to Munich, would I be able to hire one? So I wanted to visit and we were going to go off to the mountains. Would I be able to hire a, a Tesla or a, or in fact any electric vehicle? Well, yeah, with with sixth, for example, you can. I know you can uh, hire the the i three from BMW. I think you can hire electric cars. Yeah, I'm not sure about Tesla, to be honest. Um, I think you should. I don't. I can't see a reason why. Why not? Yeah. But I haven't tried. Sorry, I don't know. Uh huh. So what? How do you? What do you reckon of this theory that the 
the next 10 years we'll see the advent of driverless taxis where a car ceases to be a personal possession and just turns into a commodity where you just call it up on your you call it up on uber and there are no uber drivers anymore they're just the the units out there on the road yeah maybe not uh, as fast in germany but i could see that happening in britain i have my doubts about this whole autopilot thing and the autonomous driving um, I'm using the autopilot of the Tesla a lot for driving on, on the motorways and especially in stop and go traffic and uh, so hands free hands off the steering wheel. you have to have the hands on the on the steering wheel otherwise the start the car starts complaining and and uh, switches out of the autopilot mode if you don't have the hands on the steering wheel so it forces you to keep the hands on but there's YouTube YouTube tutorials how to put the hands on the wheel and still being able to fall asleep. So people do it and you see these videos in the internet of people falling asleep behind the, the wheel as a, as a Tesla. Personally, I, I wouldn't want to do it. I don't, I don't trust the autopilot to the extent that I would want to fall asleep. There's, I think on a motorway, yes, the, the computer is in a position to understand the environment, understand what's going on and, and react in a swift, maybe even faster manner than a human being. But in a, in a normal city situation where you have motorcycles, kids running around, pedestrians, I think the situation is too, still too complex for a computer. Uh, I, I wouldn't be using autopilots in city centers or in, in, in city traffic. Yeah. And I, I can't see how in the next 10 years it would reach the point where driverless cars are driving around in city centers and, and becoming a commodity and, and, and your car becomes an asset because you can rent it, rent it out as an, as an Uber cab or something. I think they are trying to get there, but I don't see how it's gonna happen. And you still have the issue. I mean, the accidents happened in the U.S. that uh, driver, uh, autonomous driving cars hit, uh, hit people and killed people. Right. And so who, who's going to be charged for, 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 for killing a person, the owner of the car, the manufacturer of the car, the manufacturer of the software, which didn't work properly? So there's mm -hmm. so many legal issues also involved that I just don't see it happening yet. Right. Well, if the data is all there, then it's just a step, stepwise process, right? It doesn't have to be particularly legal. Uh, the uh, so first of all, is they can look at the computer and was it driving autonomously? Then it's not the driver's fault. If it was driving autonomous, autonomously. Did something go wrong with the car mechanically that failed to react to the to the computer? If not, then um, then it's the software fault. And if it's the software fault, then what model version or um, release of software was it? And who did that? And, um, and then you got it. It's basically man turns into manslaughter for uh, what's it? Corporate? What's the what's the terminology? Corporate 
corporate manslaughter. Killing. <laughs> no, corporate yeah, corporate manslaughter. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, but I, I think what I was trying to say earlier on is I think there are still so many situations out there which cannot be judged by a car correctly or by a software of a car. I mean, this, this is one case in California where the autonomously driving car hit a person who was pushing the bike over across a motorway and the person had two plastic bags hanging off the of the bike basically and the the car didn't recognize the person in the bike as a person in the bike because it only focused on the plastic bags hanging off the bike and thought these are little plastic bags flying across the road i don't need to break because they're just plastic bags and they don't they won't hurt the car are you kidding unfortunately the car overlooked the person on the bicycle yeah and, and the person got killed so um well it's a clear case that the software developer who decided that plastic bags would only ever fly across motorways and would never hang from cycle cycling uh bicycle handlebars it's a clear error on the part of the software developer Having been a software developer, I know that that's kind of a, you know, you didn't include that in your algorithm. So you've made a, you've made it, you've got a bug. <laughs> yeah, you've got a bug. Well, the other, the other Tesla driver who, who died actually in the States was uh, the car didn't recognize a massive lorry who drove across the motorway, perpendicular to the motorway, because it was a lorry which uh, with a high with a gap between the road and the actual lorry part and the sun was shining beneath the lorry and so the car thought oh look i can see the sun under this thing on the road so it must actually just be a traffic sign very far away and which is high over the road and and then the car didn't break and, and hit the lorry from the side thinking it's a big traffic sign so I, I, what, well, what I'm saying is that there's so many situations you don't yeah. know up front yeah. where the car is not going to be reacting correctly. And it's going to, I'm not sure if it's possible to know in advance all of these situations. There will always be situations where the, the, the software misjudges what's going on. Yeah, sure. But fewer um, and fewer as they are all slowly, as the more common ones are slowly uncovered and and uh well yeah unfortunately people are injured or killed and um and then only the most exceptional circumstances will arrive will arise after a while and and basically they'll have it covered mm. i mean well having, having said that i think the car already saved my life once because i was driving up to cologne and there was a, a guy coming up with very high speed from behind and I only saw it in the, in the back mirror and I wanted to do a lane change to the middle lane from the very left lane. Keeping in mind I'm in Germany, so it's all the, the other way around. Right. Anyway, so when I was, was trying to go to the middle lane, the car suddenly just started honking and red alerts were going on and it stopped me from moving to the middle lane because I, what I didn't have realized is that stupid guy behind me was trying to overtake me on the wrong side on the middle lane and the car replaced it and stopped me from doing the lane change because otherwise I would have crashed into this the very aggressive driver from behind. Lucky one. So, but that wasn't even an autopilot. 
course, yeah. just a safety feature of the car. So even while I am actually driving, uh -huh. the computer seems to be <laughs> knowing what's going on and stop me from doing a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Soon it'll have a a little bit that you that you put on your that you put on the side of your head as well. You strap it onto your head while you're driving, and it'll read your brain waves and be able to get even more safe, get even safer as you drive along. It'll notice what you're doing and what you're thinking. It'll go, did my driver notice that car? <laughs> I can't see any stress levels going up in his brain. Uh, that's, um, that's a funny one. Okay, I've got, another, I've got another one here. I've reached the end of all my questions on, on um, Teslas and I'm moving into general areas here. So what one article that I was reading about because uh, the German press is going a bit crazy with all of the all of the ideas that they're that have got to come out all the innovation that's got to come out of industry to be able to meet the new targets that the European Union is, uh, is putting in place for um, decarbonization of the economy by 2030. Initially it was 40% decarbonization and they bumped it up to they're talking about bumping it up to 55%. Well, that's the European Council are talking about. That's the prime ministers and the, and the councillors and so on, and the people who actually make the decisions. And the European Parliament has already approved bumping it up to 60% decarbonisation by 2030. So, of course, the press is going and everybody's talking about, well, how is this all going to happen? So they're all, everybody's now theorising about how this is going to happen. And there's a consensus kind of building that with hydrogen, which isn't really in common use anywhere, is going to be the is going to be the key fuel for long for uh, long distances for trucks, for trains, and so on, and even for cars. And uh, because of the batteries and the demands that manufacturing a huge amount of batteries requires for uh, just kitting out all of these electric cars that are needed to bring down the, the um, CO2 emissions, for getting all of the, all the internal combustion engine cars off the road, all of those batteries, just, it just won't allow such a huge amount of, mi of mileage, or well, I don't know, what's the German word, the, the, the amount of kilometers by private cars on the roads. And so they're talking about hydrogen as the, uh, as the alternative. So, um, and I, <laughs> I keep on coming back to you with all of these questions from the like physics world, you know, what? Uh, no, it's, uh, it's okay. I had a similar discussion about hydrogen with someone, so I might. So your question is whether I think it's going to be feasible? Yeah. I don't think so. I think, I think the, the German car industry is realizing that they missed the train and they are going to be running behind the Asian manufacturers of, of battery cells, particularly Panasonic, for example, uh -huh. they have to come up with something else because they are, they are lacking the know-how and the resources for, for battery cells. So they, they need to, to bet on something else, i.e. hydrogen, as an as a energy source because they realize they are three or four years behind the others. I mean, you have to think about, for example, Tesla and Panasonic, they have huge contracts for natural resources out there right so 
that you go for for many many years so if now Daimler, all right really long term volkswagen decide to go also into building electric vehicles with batteries mm -hmm. they will have difficulties to get their hands on the necessary resources because others have already long-term contracts out there right so my, my personal opinion with hydrogen is um, from the from the point of view of energy efficiency it's not so good at all because you lose a lot of energy when you produce hydrogen it only really makes sense to use hydrogen when you have excess power for example in wind parks you know sometimes if the wind blows too hard you actually need to switch off whole parts of wind farms uh, because you, you suddenly produce too much electricity which the, the net can't take on yeah and then you can maybe produce hydrogen there with the excess electricity right but the, pro the process is so inefficient you lose around 70 percent of your energy when you convert electricity into hydrogen 70 percent so right 70 percent so out of 100% of wind farm power, you only end up with 30% in, in hydrogen. Yeah. So, um, and the only, the only natural source of hydrogen is basically if you dig out um, natural gas out of the ground, you, also, you always have a certain amount of, of hydrogen in there as well, which you can filter out. But you right. obviously don't want to use hydrogen out of, out of fossil fuels to power fleets of cars so what is the what is the engine that that runs on hydrogen is it a, an electric engine is it then converted no, 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 no. or is it it's a hydrogen like a combustion engine you are well there's two things you can use a combustion engine to, uh, to to burn hydrogen you basically if you burn hydrogen you get out water and and, uh, and gas so it's nothing, nothing which pollutes the environment. You get, that's why you get water out of the, the exhaust pipe. Right. So you can have a combustion engine, but again, there you lose a lot of, of your energy in heat. Yeah. The best, the better way would be to have fuel cells. So you have, you have a hydrogen tank and a fuel cell, and you convert the, the, the hydrogen into electricity, which you could then use motor what is fuel it cell, yeah fuel cell converts hydrogen into electricity and that's quite efficient you know, I think it, burn, it, burn, it burns it so it is combustion but it's it's really yeah, really no, no, no. two ways possible you can use hydrogen in a combustion engine yeah or you can use a fuel cell what does a fuel cell do it doesn't if it doesn't burn it what does it do with it it's um, it's a chem chemical process you have a membrane and the hydrogen wants to go through and you've got excess electrons and you suddenly generate electricity. And okay. it's, you have fuel cells already on the market, for example, in, in camping, caravaning, where you can, if you, you don't have um, access to a wall socket somewhere, there are systems out there to power your caravan for a couple of days with hydrogen. In a, in, a, in, a, in a fuel cell. So do the fuel and cells actually then produce water? And that's the, that's the, because um, presumably you pump hydrogen through these fuel cells and what happens to it? It doesn't come out as hydrogen at the end, I presume, or is it just absorbed into the fuel cell or what? 
that it's absorbed. No, no, no. Then... Yeah, I think you get water out again. The All end. right. But it's not a combustion. Definitely not a combustion. It's All right, okay. Chemical process. Um, but it's the, 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 the reason why I think hydrogen is not going to work or it's not going to make it, it's the process of generating the hydrogen. Yeah. Which is too damn inefficient. Right. Yeah, I can see that. The um, the problem will be then the uh, it'll be this massive fight for resources. It'll be uh, economic competition for for the resources at the end of the day. Yes, for cobalt, raw, raw earth metals yeah. and stuff. It's definitely yeah. an issue. Lithium, but at the same time, it's it's only the beginning of the the whole industrial yeah. revolution. I mean, even in the last five years, at least I know that Panasonic and Tesla managed to reduce the amount of cobalt, which is in their battery cells dramatically. And so far cobalt was the really the, the nasty stuff in the batteries in the sense that I think the biggest resource, cobalt resources are in Africa and Congo. Yeah. And uh, it's a war-torn country and it's, oh, yeah. it's really, difficult to get your hands on cobalt which is not tainted in blood or in, in other stuff yeah but they they managed to reduce already the, the cobalt content in batteries quite quite dramatically and I, I think there's still a lot of room for research and development in battery cell technology okay so it's it's thumbs down for hydrogen since you're um talking since we're talking about the big ideas here I call them the salvation technologies because we have a lot of people in politics talking about how hydrogen is going to save the, is going to save us from climate change, and there's another big one that's going to save us from climate change is carbon capture and storage, where we carry on burning loads of coal or oil or gas and capture all the CO two. Mm -hmm. Got any yeah. view on that? Is that going to yes. work, or is? Or is that a well if, if you refor if you do reforestation or what's it called if you just basically plant trees that's the kind of capturing carbon dioxide i mean that should work very easily oh yeah yeah sure sure that tree planting and um, that's a that's a natural a natural method but this thing called ccs it's often mentioned in in big business in in financial papers about the energy transition in terms of uh, well, all of these all of these big companies like steel foundries and uh, cement companies are producing loads of CO two, literally pumping up pumping it up the chimney, and they're going to try to capture it there as well, capture it from the chimneys before it before it goes out into the into the atmosphere. Yes, and then they're going to try to bury it somewhere. Well there's different solutions as well basically one client from our firm they're actually working in the field of, of, of carbon dioxide capturing <clears throat> but in the sense that they want to use the carbon dioxide from steel foundries for example to then produce fuel like fuel for cars there's a certain chemical process out there which you can use to produce benzene or um, kerosene from co2 with and you can 
what by pumping a whole lot of energy into it and presum yeah, presumably use, something else like methane or what you use natural gas as, a, as an energy source right okay. for this chemical process of producing out of co2 long chains of um of um, carbons basically to get fuel out of it it's possible and the advantage is you basically use before it ends up in the atmosphere i mean if, you, if the steel foundry would just blow up the co2 in the atmosphere that's it that's the situation now but yeah capture the co2 from the steel foundry use natural gas as an energy source to produce fuel for cars or, or, or planes right uh, there are there from you use the carbon dioxide twice before it ends up in the atmosphere that's right. for example it's not carbon capturing it's basically it's carbon, carbon usage using carbon yeah yeah usage. that one is i think that one is ccus for carbon capture use and storage or whether whether it's usage and storage or just usage or storage i don't know <laughs> yeah. i said at the moment i can't see how someone would invest a lot of money and also energy and resources out to, to capture carbon say from a steel foundry or from the atmosphere to put it then in the ground or in huge tanks and let it rest there forever well that's what they're planning and on doing in norway to pay for who sort of use taxpayers money for getting co2 out of the atmosphere yeah there's a big new uh, project kicking off in norway or sweden where they're going to pump it into the old north sea gas fields that are now empty they're going to put all the co2 down there I don't see how they reckon it's going to stay there because the whole gas field is, of course, full of holes where they extracted the methane in the first place. So I don't understand why they reckon it's going to stay there and not just bubble out. But uh, that's the theory. Well, well that's the plan, actually. That's what's kicking off already. This, that's underway. This is the type of thing they're doing. Well, if the natural gas been, has been in these fields for, for millions of years until human mankind came along and, and, and put tap on it and, and let the natural gas out if you press it back into these natural cavities under the sea floor and close the lid i'm sure it's going to stay down there because it's been staying down there for millions of years before but if i think about it as a physicist and remember the laws of entropy um i just think it's going to take a lot of it's going to take more energy to get all this CO2 back under the seabed into these natural gas fields than it, it used to take to get it out of there and burn it. So, I mean, if you want to basically undo the damage mankind has done by using fossil fuels, you will end up even using more energy to get the fossil resources back under the ground. Yeah, I think so that's... I, I I think reforestation, planting trees, maybe then chopping down the trees and I think that would just create this. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't be able to store them in California, not for very long until the next fire season. Now you'd want to get the trees out of the out of the way of any possible fire fire related hazard. But um. Definitely. I think the, uh, I think a lot of the theories that are coming out about 
about reforestation of degraded land is that you can just plant the trees and let it go and just leave the climax ecosystem there once it once it's regrown after say a hundred years and just leave it there and it will keep building it will keep building up um it will keep absorbing a certain amount of co2 as part of a natural carbon cycle these forests draw down co2 and and uh it get it builds up in the soil and um as long as it's left to its own devices assuming that the climate doesn't change so radically that it then starts burning up again itself and the theory is that that should be stable mm. i think i also read something else about you know fertilizing the 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 oceans to, to induce algae growth and let the algae just die off and sink to the ground of the seabeds that this might also work quite efficiently to get to, to, to capture CO2. <laughs> Obviously it's a bit of a bit of a mayhem to the oceans if you start putting out fertilizers there into the oceans and well, destroying other systems to undo the damage <laughs> in other ecosystems. Yeah. I think there's a lot of mayhem in the pipe, in the pipeline, whichever way we look at it, whichever way it goes. There's a lot I'm of talk about these these minerals minerals right dig them up from the bottom of the ocean that's meant to be the best place for them the most promising place to get them nowadays yes metan all oh, this uh, i heard about as well but coming back to electrical vehicles i mean i haven't really made up my mind so far but there's so much information out there about how much co2 is actually being produced for say a model 3 tesla car and then there was been studies in Sweden which say, oh God, don't even think about how much CO2 would use to produce your long range battery and how long do you have to drive the car until it's actually more CO2 friendly than a combustion engine car. Right. It's, um, it's a big question. It's a big question. And it depends which lobby you have paid and what <laughs> results you want to read. I think in the internet you can find pretty much everything. I, still, this is, I, mean, it's just, I suspect it really depends on where your car has been manufactured and the amount of energy from alternative energy sources that were used to produce your car. I mean, if you, if you produce these battery packs using electricity from coal power plants, then obviously it looks quite nasty. Yeah. If you use photovoltaic electricity to produce your power packs, your battery then it looks much, much better. So. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, I think if, as long as you are reducing the supply of fossil fuels that are, that are coming onto the market, then you're going to be guaranteed that you will get down to zero. Zero fossil fuels coming onto the market will mean zero CO2 emissions, right? I think that's the principle that you've got to adhere to. You can try yeah, all of this stuff with like cars, carbon taxes and dampening demand and stopping people using this, that or the other and a whole lot of legislation. But if you don't stop the supply of fossil fuels, how the hell are you going to stop the CO2 being emitted? Yes. But I think my point is that you should somehow force the manufacturers of electrical vehicles to give honest data on how the car has been manufactured and produced. 
because mm -hmm. otherwise it's it's i mean well that is if the, the burn fossil fuels are still being used to produce your your battery but yeah. you as a you know, of, the, of the electric car can't see it yeah because you don't know that you actually drive a dirty car still a dirty car even if it's electric and that's not yeah, that's a, that's a massive concern. There are a lot of people who say, uh, you know, you just got to stop consuming. That's the solution. All of or this share. stuff. Build, build, build in. Yeah. Sharing things. I mean, the uh, the thing that I'm the thing that I'm looking at at the moment that I that I I work a lot on is a. Um, well, the theory that the theory goes, the reason I got into it is because I just looked at all of these things where you just got inbuilt CO2 emissions in everything, every, every way you turn. When you go out to get something, you, you pay your money and you, and you get it and you think right now I can live sustainably, but you've just paid for somebody who's been using tons of tons of fossil fuels and has emitted tons of CO2. Now that doesn't just happen with a Tesla. It happens with everything. Absolutely every single supply chain in the world is completely, fossil fuels just pervade the whole of the economy. They're just, just totally in, integrated into our economy. I think that the concept of uh, a carbon currency that you pay, that covers the whole of the economy, that goes all the way down, after you pay Tesla, Tesla then pay their battery or their battery um, producer Panasonic, and, and then Panasonic then pay the people who delivered the cobalt, and then the people who delivered the cobalt pay pay the the carbon currency as well as the price as well as the money. So you have a dual currency, so that carbon is ingrained across the supply chain in the same way that fossil fuels are ingrained in our economy. And I think that is the only way we're going to do it. Because I think if you try to get a government to set up a department that looks at Tesla, that looks at every other producer, that every other service provider, and tries to make them put their carbon content of the CO2 emissions that went into their product or their service onto the label so that you know how much CO2 has been emitted in in building whatever it was you just bought that is just going to run into the sand because you're trying to produce this co2 emissions label for everything so why do that why get somebody with a massive spreadsheet to do that when you can get it to run through the whole economy as as a currency as a carbon currency that's my that's my way yeah, of talking. Can you not also do it with a carbon tax? Everyone, everyone who offers a product on the market has to pay a carbon tax. Well, it's, 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 I think it's pretty much the same thing, right? You could do, but a carbon tax is inherently unfair on the, on the lower incomes, and it favors the people with higher incomes who just won't really care. They just go, bit more money, just pay it. Just do what I wanted to do anyway and pay it. And um, the, uh, you take the approach, an equitable approach with the carbon currency is that you base it on carbon rations that you allocate on a per capita basis fairly across the board. So Mr. and Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Smith down the road 
who earn absolutely nothing, minimum wage, they get the same amount of current, same amount of carbon rations that is that they can use to spend as a carbon currency, as the rich people at the top of the hill who have uh, who are going to be the ones who uh, the only ones really who would feel it when it was if it was introduced at a level that really kind of covers pretty much covers us all. It would really only hit the people who are flagrant carbon abusers. Here's 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 an add-on idea. I mean, if you, if you say you put all the income that which a state generates from a carbon tax into processes to capture carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into the ground, like we were talking about early on in Norway. Then I think you could say, okay, the carbon tax, it's, it's okay that it's sort of unfair because the people who pay more carbon tax because they, for example, buy an expensive car, which uses up lots of carbon in the, in the manufacturing process, they also pay a lot towards getting the CO2 out of the atmosphere. Yeah, you could do it like that. I think but that they, would mean that you really force the governments to use all their profits out of the carbon tax for that specific purpose. Yeah, you could certainly do that. And there is, there are quite a few policies out there where they're trying to implement it like that. I think British Columbia is doing it like that. They have, um, they have what's called a, a dividend, a carbon dividend. So they take the carbon tax off everybody, off every purchase of petrol or, or gas or whatever they call it. And, um, and then they pay it out to everybody on an equal share basis. And that works to a certain point. But the problem with the tax is that, first of all, it's only dampening demand. And it's not actually restricting supply. So it's a bit like cigarettes, right? You'll be able to squeeze a lot of the, a lot of the demand for the carbon, but you'll never be able to choke it off completely because there'll still be people who just, just like smoking. They just really, really want that cigarette. And the second thing is that um, taxes just generally kind of, it's like red tape for business. It, it restricts business. Uh, it doesn't really, doesn't really um, foster innovation. Whereas you have a carbon price that they have that you would have to pay. Say you were looking for, um, say you're looking for a new office because you have to move, or you're looking for some new for some new computers for your office. Then you just go out and you look around, and if you saw a carbon price that you have to pay on whatever it was you were buying, you would take that into account on the same, same, same way as you would money. The same way you would look at the real price. You look at the real price and you'd also consider the carbon price. And as soon as you have to pay more carbon than you've got and you have to get some from somewhere else, so you have to, basically you're really looking at trying to nail your carbon budget because you're overspending. You know, that will just have such a, such a, focused effect on everything everybody will be doing this you don't have, you would just be amazed how fast people would react a carbon tax is a bit of a dull instrument it's kind of like just smacking something with a hammer when really when you have the carbon the carbon currency with the exact price of how much co2 emissions have come out of that product everybody can see it 
not only can everybody see it, but it would be updated on a on a real-time basis. You wouldn't be waiting for some government to turn around and go, oh, look, we need to adjust the carbon tax. It would just be done. When a company I gets a new lower price product. <laughs> Sorry? I can see you've been thinking about this a lot. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll take that as my cue, actually. It's probably like how long we, how many minutes do we have? Oh, geez. Wow. Okay. Can I, can, I, can I just quickly check on the boys and, and see whether they're, because they're still running around there and you say it's safe good night to them. I'll tell you what, let's, let's end the podcast and then uh, here. And so I'll say thanks very much for being on the podcast, Dirk. And, um, and then I'll stay on the line and chat to you in a bit. But okay. Thank, thank you, you everybody. For the lively discussion. I'll be back in a minute. Hang on. Okay. So thank you everybody for listening. That was the uh, Carbon Watchdog podcast with, with Dirk. Go and check on your kids. Okay, I'll do. And um, so if you like that and you want to hear more of this kind of podcast, then please go to my website. You'll find a link to Patreon there where you can support me. And I'll be back next week with another episode and hopefully as interesting as this one. So thanks a lot, Dirk. And good night, everybody. My name is Adam Hardy, and this is the Carbon Watchdog Podcast. All of the website content and uh, the podcasts are free. If you like what Carbon Watchdog is doing, then please head over to patreon.com using the link on the website and support me there. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into the next one. Bye.